Again, Titus chapter 1, verses 5 to 11. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. Anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife, and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered, or a drunkard or violent, or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced, since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. This is God's word. And, of course, my mic went out, so uh, this is just not my day today, so, <laughs> but thankfully, uh, this is all about the Lord this morning, so thank you, Joe, for, for reading. I'm going to be using this this morning, so bear with me. Uh, I want to lay out for us just a very simple progression for how a person tends to grow. I don't know why each of you are here this morning. For some of you, you might be looking for sort of direction of where God wants you to be. Or maybe for a little guidance on what he wants you to be doing in life. But I can assure you that God mostly cares more than where and more than what about who you are and who you are becoming. He he can grow you. He can fashion you into the kind of person he wants you to be as a child of God anywhere doing virtually anything. So I hope you care mostly this morning about growth, how you can grow as a person. Here are just sort of five general steps that won't be too unfamiliar for how a person tends to grow. All right, so number one, individuals need community to grow. We all know that individuals need community to grow, Uh, not only because we have blind spots that we cannot see and shortcomings that we cannot mask, and thus need other people to help us, to to fill in the gaps where we are weak and grow forward, but because we were created to to live, to serve, to grow relationally, because the triune God who creates us lives, serves, and loves relationally, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And that's why it's more rewarding, isn't it, when you not only grow, but you grow with others, right? Right? There's something really special about being a team and growing because we have a Godhead who is one God, but also a team. So individuals need community to grow. A community needs leadership to grow. Number two, the community needs leadership to grow. And number three, if there's a leadership vacuum, leaders will emerge. And and it's astounding how often we find ourselves, I think, in in a sort of leadership vacuum. Uh, a couple weeks ago, we threw a party to honor all our volunteers at a place called Locked In Cayman. Uh, and what you do is you get together with a group of people and you solve clues to get out of a room you're locked into. It sounds bizarre, and, and maybe if you haven't done it, like, kind of scary. It's actually pretty fun and really interesting. And, it, and what happens is you get locked in this room and the guide suddenly leaves you. And, and you sort of sit there and someone has to speak up. And you, you can feel how everyone in the room... Even if you know these people, it's kind of hesitant to be the first one to talk. 
to be the first one to say, here's what we should do, right? Until someone finally, usually someone who's done it before, speaks up, and you're like, oh, thank goodness. And then you work together, and you hopefully get out of the room eventually. There's some, still some people stuck in the room there. It's very sad that they've been given food and water. They, they signed a waiver, so, you know. Anyway, it, it, but it, other, other places, well, I've been a ha- on a handful of adult sports teams, and, and people sign up for these, and no one really thinks of coaching, when you're an adult with other adults, no one thinks, no one wants to be the person who shows up with the whistle in their mouth, right? And says, okay, guys, here we go. Right? No one wants to be that guy or that girl. Though you have individuals motivated to grow and succeed, they must do so on a team, and so a leader must emerge. Even in, in mother's playgroups, mommy playgroups, you get together with moms. Why? Because you want to share conversations with humans who can you know, form complete sentences, right? Because it's been a long time for many of you. And so, so you get together, and you, you learn more about parenting, you get tips. But then someone has to organize the next time and the next place you get together. Possibly, if the group grows, even include some content or some reading to grow as a parent, as I know someone here at Sunrise is done with a mom's group. No one wants to be that mom, though, who pushes her own agenda, right? Who says, here's what I think we should do. Here's what I think we should go. Here's what I think we should be doing, right? And yet... If no one steps up, there's no organization. Nothing ends up happening. Or think about even going on a trip with other people. Maybe it's with another couple, if you're a couple or, or, or not, just, just a group of people. No one wants to be the tour guide, right? No one wants to be the one determining the agenda every morning. Say, okay, guys, we got an hour here. We got three hours over here. We got four hours over here. Although that was every trip of my childhood with my father. All right? It was not a real vacation. Pool time, if we have 30 minutes at the end of the day. That's how it was, right? No, not many, though, want to be that person. But if you want to experience all that your destination has to offer, someone's got to step up, right? And at least lead the decision-making in what to do. And so I think as, you're, as you think about this, and you think about growing, what you're noticing is usually there's a lot of reluctance. And too much reluctance among community will often produce a poor leader. So our first church basketball game this past season uh, was one such situation. Our natural coach wasn't available to be there, and no one else, I'm looking at you, Nate Smith, was uh, raising their hand. So I felt like I should. You know, I'm a pastor of the church, you know, whatever. And I can't tell you how many international FIBA basketball rules I broke trying to coach this team. I'm, I'm used to just sort of simply American rules, whatever. I know I'm America-centric. It's bad. I was trying to call timeouts when it wasn't allowed, and the referee was like, you can't call timeout now. I was like, I don't understand the rules. Substituting players when I wasn't supposed to into the game, we, we lost that game. All right, we, it was very sad. It was poor, clearly poor leadership. Now, the result that night wasn't so harmful, but the result often is far more harmful when the wrong kind of leader steps up and tries to do what? They try to get their own advantage and manipulate to get their own advantage. Or, or maybe they're just unbalanced in their priorities or they respond harshly, or, or sometimes worse, passive-aggressively when things don't go the right way. Right? And all of a sudden, the, the team is toxic. Poor leadership leads to misshapen growth of not only the community, but the individual. And I bring all this up because such seems to be the setting of what we read today in God's Word. The Apostle Paul has left behind on the island of Crete, his friend and his true child in the faith, Titus. He, he's left Titus amongst individuals 
who's had their lives changed by the good news about Jesus. So they're super motivated to grow in knowing and becoming more like Jesus. And so what do they need? They need each other. They need community. People begin gathering in homes in different towns across the island of Crete, worshiping Jesus together. And we're not told exactly what happens at this point. There's a little gap here in the middle. But you can imagine people wanting to get together and worship, perhaps saying things like, you know what? No one needs to lead. God will lead us. Right? No one needs to lead. The Holy Spirit will lead. People still say this today, even though we look at Acts, when the Holy Spirit leads, someone steps up and explains what's going on. So, in fact, there is a need for a leader. People who, at Crete, show up but are reluctant to step up. Amidst such community, there is a vacuum of leadership. And so what happens here in Crete? Poor leaders emerge. And as we read, they pay no mind to the simple teachings about Jesus that Paul shared with them. Instead, they are talkers who offer their own additions and perspective to the message of salvation, the message of the gospel. They, they see a void in leadership as a means to gain notoriety, to gain wealth, and so they go for it, misshaping the growth of the community and individuals. And so we read that the growth of whole families, households, and churches are upset. We read that right in verse 11. Everything's upset. It's disheveled. It's broken apart. And so what happens is Paul sees this happening. So he advocates, but more than that, commands that a better solution is needed to fill this vacuum, to grow and appoint godly leaders called elders, to help lead this community, to give them direction, to give them a sense of purpose, and to share mostly the gospel and help them grow by the gospel. It's true for many churches too today that there's a lot of reluctance And guys, it's not sufficient that we keep on showing up without stepping up. Each of us is called to grow, to step up in our life with Christ. We are loved by God unconditionally. And that love should make us want to say, God, I want to take that next step in growth. Yet, of course, many of us are reluctant to. We're reluctant to be leaders. So I want to ask and address three questions this morning. Why is it good, first of all, to be in a church with elders Why is it good to be in a community, a church community with elders? Secondly, why should I aspire to be an elder? And thirdly, how can I grow into a godly elder? So first, why is it good? Why is it so good to be in a church with elders? Number one, God says so. God says so. Whether it's Luke, Paul, James, Peter, the writers of the New Testament all talk about appointing, calling upon, aspiring to the office of elders. They didn't say, in the name of super spirituality, right, appoint apostles, nor in the name of sort of bottom line results, appoint the most successful business people we know, who we know can get the bottom line moved, nor in the name of diversity, appoint in a church a committee that represents all the different kinds of people in the church. So we have a sense of diversity, but instead he says what? Verse 5, look at that with me. You're going to need a Bible this morning. (laughs) Verse 5, Appoint elders. And not only that, but in every town. In other words, it goes beyond just the context of one city, whether it's a rural city or an urban city or a seafaring city, which might have different needs and different desires. He says, every town appoint elders as I directed you. In other words, it's not just a suggestion he's making. It's not just leadership consultation. He's saying, I am directing you by the Holy Spirit of God. So some of you here this morning are visiting different kinds of churches. 
And this is your sort of stop this morning. Others among you are still unsure, even about this church. Some may be moving soon. You're going to be selecting a new church. And I would just encourage you guys, consider a church that sticks to God's word when it comes to leadership. No matter where you worship, move, or go, a church led by elders is one, one indication the church values God's word above expediency, efficiency, or just what will upset the least amount of people. But the the dirty reality, guys, is that that's often how churches work. We just want to pacify everyone. We just want to make everyone feel good and move the bottom line, not necessarily be faithful to what God's word says about leadership. So why is it good to be in a church with elders? Because God says so. And number two, because there are plural leaders. Notice it's not just elder It's elders. It's not just appointing one person to kind of take the reins and be the CEO of the church. It's elders. And how many times, guys, have we heard of churches that when the preacher falls or goes off the rails, the church quickly does what? Crumbles, right? It just crumbles apart. Or when the preacher just slowly gets apathetic about his walk with God and about not seeing growth in the kingdom, the church stagnates, right? It just dies a slow death. How many times does that happen? There's a reason why God says not one person, but many. Not one shepherd, but plural. And one of the great joys for me, since sort of our last wave of of having new elders back in 2013, new elders kind of came into our, our team, was hearing more people say to others, hey, have you spoken to Ryan, to Brett, or to the elders And it's been awesome just to hear that more and more, that people are recognizing that these men are shepherds. Kevin, Gordon, Neil, Brett, these guys are caring for other people with the gospel. And it's understandable, like, people will sometimes just come to me because I'm the lead guy, I'm going to be the most visible guy in the church. But these men are truly shepherds with me, serving on a team, making decisions and leading together. So, It's good to be in church with elders because God says so, because there's plural leaders. And number three, proven leaders. We see that in verse 6. Notice that in verse 6 there. Look at that. The first list of qualifications, the first set of of qualifications for elders are his ability to lead his family. 1 Timothy 3.5, Paul elaborates in this way. For if someone doesn't know how to manage his own household, how is he going to care for God's household? If a person can't manage their own house, how can they manage God's church, he says in 1 Timothy 3. So that is firstly very important. How how is that going to happen? It's a logical question. But also, I know I ask, how then will they do with slightly larger families? So at every newcomer's lunch, which I hope you join us at next week, I describe sort of how we usually find elders. And I say that the best breeding ground for elders is usually our community groups. Small groups of of 8 to 14 people who meet together to fulfill the one another's of Scripture. And the best venue for potential elders to demonstrate things like hospitality, the ability to instruct and correct, and just have their family life revealed is in that kind of group. To demonstrate the kind of qualifications mentioned in places like Titus 1, 1 Timothy 3, Acts 20, 1 Peter 5, all the big places in the Bible that talk about elders, shepherds, and overseers. In other words, they're supposed to be proven people, people who have shepherding. In fact, when we look for an elder, we say, who is already doing the work of an elder? And we can just tap them on the shoulder and call them into this. 
It's so good to be part of a church with those who are plural and those who are proven, but also, fourthly, reliable leaders. Verse 7 talks about an elder being God's steward. God's steward. What, what is he in charge of stewarding? The gospel, the good news about Jesus, and, and feeding the flock with that good news. Look then at verse 9. It says that he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught. What is that word? Again, the good news about Jesus. Now, people teach all kinds of truth, right, that promises all kinds of growth in our lives, all kinds of peace, growth. But there's only one truth that, as we read last week in verse 1, accords with godliness, or as the NIV translated, leads to godliness. It helps transform you to look like the God-man Jesus. There's only one truth, and that is the truth of the gospel. So an elder knows, he leads, and he feeds with the gospel. He knows the gospel. He leads with it. He has it in mind as he's making decisions. And he feeds the flock with the gospel, like a shepherd who feeds sheep with green grass every time because he knows it's most healthy for them. So a shepherd of the God's church is supposed to feed with the same gospel every time. And let me just make an aside real quick because it might feel like I'm always talking about the gospel, the same gospel. When you approach an elder, they're just going to tell me some gospel truth, something about Jesus, and Jesus is always the answer. But in the gospel, therein lies all the resources for what ails us. And that is the truth. For instance, that need to get outside yourself, to look beyond yourself for meaning. The gospel presents an, the picture of a big God, a God who's not only loving but just, who's righteous, who doesn't change his standards based on a whim, but also merciful, also has big plans for life, a big, big God. The gospel has the resources of a, a realistic view of yourself. When you need a sober assessment of who you are and what you care about and what's, what's hindering your life, the gospel says you're made in God's image but stained by sin. Stained by sin in all its variations. Idolatry, over-desires, flat-out rebellion, weaknesses, just a sense of incompleteness all as a result of sin in this world and in our lives. And the gospel presents an accurate view of that. It also gives us resources for dealing with unjust suffering, what seems to be prolonged and unjust suffering, because the gospel gives us the cross of Jesus, the paramount example of someone who suffered unjustly. If you're in need for desperate hope, that God can change your circumstances in an instant and then even change you in an instant, the resurrection of Jesus provides us that resource to know that at any time God can change not only my circumstances but my very person into making me more like Jesus. And so we see that reliable leaders counsel with the trustworthy words of the gospel. And I could just stop there this morning because the gospel is all we need. But of course, I'll keep going. So uh, number number five, it's good to be part of a church with elders. So you're not misled. Paul commands in verse 5, look, to appoint elders. But in verse 10, notice in the new paragraph there in your, in your book, he gives us the reason to appoint elders. For there are many, there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. So the reason we need to appoint elders is to fill vacuum, that, that leadership vacuum. We're coming back to that. New and young churches often have a void of leadership. 
And it's filled, they're filled with people who are motivated to grow because God has done for them so much. But often reluctant to step up because maybe they're new Christians. But among reluctant people, again, I'm repeating the same thing, what happens? If, among reluctant people, often poor leaders emerge. Churches are called to make disciples who make disciples who fill churches with godliness. Let me say that again. Churches are called to make disciples who make disciples to fill churches with godliness, to fill that void with gospel-shaped people. Have you guys ever heard that phrase, give a man a fish, he will eat for a day, right? Teach a man a fish and he will eat for a lifetime. That's what elders are called to do. Elders are men who have been caught by the gospel. And then they are taught how to catch others with the gospel. That's very simply what we as elders are called to do. Where we're caught, and then we're ca- I've been taught, we catch others. And that's how God multiplies churches. It's the picture of 2 Timothy 2.2, if you want to look that up sometime. The reality, though, is, guys, that the elders weren't grown overnight, neither here nor certainly in Crete, where Titus was. Paul explains that he left Titus behind on this island, quote, to, to put what remained into order. Right, we see that in verse 5. To put what remained into order, or literally, that you might set right the things that are lacking, things that are still lacking. This likely means that when Paul left, some growing disciples and even leaders weren't yet ready to become elders. And it's wise that Paul didn't say, well, let's just get the best 10 people available. Let's just get the best of what we have. Because elsewhere, Paul says, don't nominate new converts to be elders. Don't be hasty in the laying on of hands. In other words, choosing elders. Wait. And so he leaves and waits. Titus had to first probably grow those leaders. Grow leaders. And frankly, so do we at sunrise and as elders to grow leaders, and many of you are called to that. Many of you are called to lead. And so you might ask yourself, why should I aspire to that? That's our second point this morning. Why should I aspire to be a leader? Our second question. Let me just give you three very brief reasons you should aspire to be a leader. Number one, you may be one already. You may be a leader already. If you're a husband, you're a leader, Ephesians 5. If you're a parent, you're a leader, Ephesians 6, Deuteronomy 6. If someone reports to you in your business or, or anything you do, you are a leader. If you're a volunteer in kids' ministry in some way, kids are, are following your lead. In fact, if you're a Christian, 1 Corinthians 7 talks about how only to let one lead the life God has assigned to him. In other words, lead your own life. You might be a leader already. Secondly, you should aspire to be a leader because we're all called to at least occasional leadership. At least occasional leadership, on occasion. If there's a group with a leadership vacuum, what will happen? Leaders will emerge. And where there is reluctance, what will happen? Usually poor leadership will step up. So you're going to spend some time, Lord willing, you're going to spend some time with, with one another in this church in social settings. And sometimes mixed into that group are going to be people who don't go to church or don't care about God. Decisions are going to be made on what you do together, where to go, how long to stay, with what you should be filling your time and your bodies. And in those moments, guys, everyone wants to be the laid-back one. 
We almost treat being laid back like it's a spiritual gift, right? I had the gift of teaching. I had the gift of administration. I had the gift of being laid back and chill, right? Everyone wants to be that person when you're in a group setting, and I get that. No one in their flesh wants to step up, but someone will. Someone will step up into that void and fill it. Often it'll be the most charismatic person. It might be the most wealthy person. Might be the most clever person, the most well-liked person, but it should be a gospel-shaped person. It should be you. It should be you. So why aspire to be a leader? You might be one already. Because we're all called to at least occasional leadership. And number three, others are looking to your example. Paul, guys, isn't just writing to Titus. In fact, the very last verse of this letter is very significant. So turn to it in your Bible, if you have to turn it over to, to chapter 3, verse 15. And look what Paul says here. All who are with me send greetings to you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. That word you in the first half of the verse is singular. Paul is talking to Titus. But the word you in the second half is plural. It's a y'all, right? And in Greek, there was actually a word that would be translated y'all. Paul is talking then to the whole church in Crete. What's happening then here? This letter to Titus, Paul expects the church to overhear it also. This letter serves then as a kind of public commendation of Titus. Paul wants everyone to know that here's Titus. Look at Titus. Here is a godly leader. Here is someone you should look for in a leader. This is the kind of, kind of leader you should look for and, and to which you should aspire. If you call yourself a Christian, Your life is an open letter, isn't it? Declaring who Jesus is. You are a little Christ, a Christian. You're either declaring who Jesus is or who he isn't with your life. Can you imagine Titus sharing the same letter with the churches in Crete? This is a letter addressed to him. And as he read it, knowing that he's the guy it's written to, all eyes must have been on him. Thinking, man, Titus, Paul's talking about you. (laughs) All that accountability, all those eyes, he must have felt very small, insufficient, powerless, in need of God's help. And friends, that is a great place to begin as a leader. Knowing you, you can't live up to this list. Desperate for God's help. That is a great place to begin. And so, so how then, if we're at least called to occasional leadership, maybe even permanent leadership, how can I grow into a godly leader? This is our last question. How can I grow into a godly leader? The simple answer is through the gospel. Through the gospel. Let me unpack that a little bit. You know, we look at these qualities. Look at these qualities again here in Titus. Above reproach, not arrogant, quick-tempered, drunkard, violent, greedy for game, hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, disciplined. You might look at these qualities and think, man, there is no way I could live up to that list. Like consistently. When everyone's looking and not looking, how can I possibly live up to this? And that's the very entry point into the gospel. The gospel says we are helpless, we are insufficient, and that God has to act first. Think about that. Think about what did you do to be created? What did you do for God to say, I'm going to let this person live on earth? Nothing, of course. We were nothing, an undeserving sort of plan in God's eyes, but he created us from nothing to something. The Bible describes our, then our spiritual condition once we're born in three increasingly desperate straits that, that we're, first of all, lost. 
right? That, that on our own, we can't find our way back to God. But then he describes us as blind. The Bible describes us as blind. So not only are we lost, we can't find our way. We can't, we can't get our map. We can only touch and hear. We've lost one of our senses. We are lacking and incomplete. But then the Bible goes a step further in describing our spiritual state and says that we are dead, that we are dead in our trespasses. It's using every kind of analogy to say you are helpless, but the good news, as it says in Ephesians 2, is that God, who's rich in mercy, can make you alive together in Christ. It's by grace you've been saved. We're helpless, but God supplies the grace. Or think about the day you're going to physically die. There is nothing on the other side of death's door. There's no negotiation point. There's no second chances. There's nothing you can actually do to live forever unless God raises you to life. In all these ways, see guys, God has to act first. It's a great truth summarized in 1 John 4, 19, where the Apostle John says that we can love. We love because he first loved us. God first loved us. That helps us love others. There is no other way. God has to act first. So, so I want you to consider this list again, a list that might seem very daunting from the perspective of God's initiating love that God first demonstrated all of these qualities first towards us. All of these qualities I just read, God demonstrated first towards us. So for example, we're told in verse 6, a leader is to be above reproach. This is someone upon whom you can't cast a lot of blame. doesn't mean they're a perfect person. They're just the kind of person that when something goes wrong, you don't immediately think, oh man, that's them. That's their fault. Above reproach. God has been above reproach with toward us. Working all things for good. Even the things we don't know, why, God, are you doing this right now? Things we often see later, oh, I get it now. Or we will one day in heaven, I get it now. God is above reproach towards us. He first loved us. Do you see this? All of these qualities God demonstrated first towards us as our chief shepherd. Verse 6, the husband of but one wife. This is someone who is faithful no matter what. No matter how he's treated by a spouse or what he has to endure in his marriage He stays faithful, but God is the first faithful one. He's faithful no matter how he is treated by us, no matter what he has to endure from us, how patient he is with us. 2 Timothy 2.13 says that if we are faithless, he remains faithful, for God cannot disown himself. He can't disown his own character. Think about that radical truth. If we are faithless at different points throughout our lives, he stays faithful to us. Because he's the first husband to us. Verse 6. His children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. His children are believers. There's three ways to interpret this. could be that an elder's children are professing Christians. And that's a requirement. It could be, secondly, that children are generally faithful. They follow the principles laid out by faithful parents. Thirdly, the children are young. The language here suggests that this is actually referring to young children, in which case when you're young, you tend to believe what your parents teach you and instruct you as long as they're intentional in instructing you in the ways of the gospel. And I think that's what Paul has in mind, something like this, the household that is instructed in the content and application of the gospel, that it so permeates the home that it affects a child's behavior. They're not going to be open to the charge of insubordination, constant rebellion, and that sort of thing. There's a high standard, but even higher grace from the Bible. But also expectations in the way we discipline our children, if you're a parent, and the encouragement we give our kids. And that's how God acts towards us in Christ. There is a high standard. 
God doesn't lower his standard for Christians. Make no mistake, but there's even higher grace. Paul says this in Romans 5.20 that that there's the law. And where there's the law, we fall short. Sin abounds, but grace abounds all the more. He is the first to to be this way towards us, the the loving father, the parent who shows more grace towards us. You see this? You start to see this pattern, I hope, that this list can serve as a gospel meditation, that God through Christ is first all these things to us, hospitable, he's kind, not greedy for gain, he's upright, he's a lover of good, always welcoming, He's all these things towards us, and that gives us the power to begin to embody these things in our own lives. In fact, holding on to the gospel that God through Christ is all these things towards us, that gives us the power. And that's how Paul concludes this very paragraph. Skip down, if you would, to verse 9, where we're told that an elder must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, in other words, the gospel, so that he may be able to give instruction and rebuke those who contradict it. The person who holds firm to the truths and the promises of the gospel, thinking on them, praying on them, claiming them, is able to live them out. He's able to live it out. In fact, that word be able is a translation of the Greek word dunatos, from which we get the word dynamite. The gospel is the dynamite for growing the next step towards being a godly leader. It is the power. It is the explosive power that all of us are given, seeing that God is this way towards us, loving, welcoming, not greedy, wanting our good towards us, that gives us the power to grow in that next step and being that kind of person towards others. So I want to encourage you, let the gospel empower you to take that next step in godly leadership, whatever that is for you. Maybe it's just admitting, there's, there's no way I can live up to this list. And that is a great entry point into the gospel. Maybe it's daily meditating on the gospel, using a list like this to daily consider how our chief shepherd first loves you in all of these ways. Maybe it's a commitment you want to make to God this morning to step up into that leadership vacuum the next time it's required when you're among a group of people. Maybe it's stepping into a more permanent leadership role and serving the body of Christ in some regular way and so assist in someone else's growth, helping someone else learn how to fish. Perhaps it's even to aspire towards becoming an elder, joining with other men to know, lead, and feed God's church. So, about six years ago, around this time, I began training our first ever group of elders at Sunrise. I never before trained elders. Heck, I never before been an elder. And it was a daunting task. And so I reached out to other elders I admire and served alongside. And a man named Paul Duran was, was one of these men whom, with whom I was especially close and, and served alongside. And he wrote me a letter that I want to just share with you as we close. Um, it's a letter that I often share with our elders in training here at Sunrise. Ryan, for almost a decade, I was mentored by a pastor in Dallas, Texas. He invested years of Saturday mornings in a handful of men. He was passionate about 2 Timothy 2.2, and he was passionate about cultivating leadership. He asked me about joining in church leaders several times, and my answer was always the same. I was too busy. Just choose someone else. Later in life, when I lived in Tallahassee, Florida, I took up the call to be an elder. And I can tell you that serving as an overseer in God's church is a calling that will have a deep and profound spiritual impact on anyone who chooses it. My life was never the same. I found that I was more spiritually alive when I was serving alongside godly men 
that looked at the needs of others as more important than mine. I looked forward to elder prayer with anticipation, knowing that I would be spiritually refreshed. In spite of the difficult days when we dealt with the effects of sin and broken people, I found the work to be fulfilling and so worthy of my time. I left leadership meetings believing for the first time all week I was in God's perfect will. And very few people can say this. The work inspired me in the vast treasure of God's word and the intimacy of prayer. I found that being a shepherd is highly esteemed, not only by the congregation, but by the body of Christ as a whole. The call to biblical eldership is a high calling, rich in spiritual reward. He said, I look forward to getting old, parentheses, seriously. <laughs> as I now understand the scriptural perspective on being a gray-haired shepherd, it has clearly been among the best steps I've ever taken in my lifetime. Sincerely, your friend, Paul. Let's pray. God, I just pray this morning, you are our chief shepherd, caring for, tending to all of us. You were the first one to know us, to lead us, and to feed us. And you call all of us towards spiritual leadership, whatever that might look like. Thank you for being the first, the first to love us, the first to empower us, so that we can go out and catch others whether it just be in a group setting, Lord, where there's a, spirit, there's a leadership vacuum and you're calling us to step up, whether it be in something more permanent and serving the body of Christ, or whether it's even towards this high calling of being an elder. I pray that, that each of us is a, a little bit more inspired, a little more encouraged by your Holy Spirit and through your word to take that next step in growing to be a leader who can serve you and love others well. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen.